And let's all listen carefully to the word of God. We're going to turn to, in our Bibles, to the book of Hebrews, chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. We are in a series of messages and studies right now in the book of Hebrews. We've been doing it through the Advent season, and we're going to continue it as long as it takes to study the entire book of Hebrews. So I'm excited about that. I hope you are too. And we continue today at Hebrews chapter 5. Listen carefully then to the word of God. It says, Every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as for the sins of the people. No one takes this honor upon himself. He must be called by God, just as Aaron was. So Christ also did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest. But God said to him, You are my son, today I have become your father. And he says in another place, You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered, and once, once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him, and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. This is God's word. Yesterday, by the way, we had a wonderful Christmas dinner for the homeless. Every year at Christmas time, we uh, put together a lot of food, a lot of decorations. We have volunteers. They come, they show up, and we invite the homeless community in our East Orlando area to come and join us for Christmas dinner. And I just want to say, before we look any further here, that uh, to you who helped in that in any way, who brought food, who were volunteers for that uh, time, thank you very much. It was a great a great time. We had probably 75 or 100 homeless people, I'm going to guess, and uh, families were there. Kids were there. Um, men and women were there. We had a wonderful time together. And I was thinking about after that dinner, I, as I was driving back home from that, I was thinking that I myself feel that there's a, a, a chasm of cultural difference between me and homeless people. And I'm afraid of them in some ways. They intimidate me in some ways. Because I think there's there's nothing that they experience that I really understand, you know. But as I thought about that, I thought when I was looking at them, and I gave a little 10 minute talk to them yesterday. As I was looking at them giving that talk, I thought to myself, you know, that's really not true. They and I are just alike. It's just that they're found in a very different place economically from me right now. But that could just as easily be me. We have a lot in common, in other words. That is a little bit like a lot of people approach the book of Hebrews. When you read through the book of Hebrews, you're looking at a group of people that at first you think they are so culturally different from me, there's no way that I would ever be able to understand this book. 
In fact, I suspect while I was reading those verses, you were sort of scratching your head a little bit thinking, what in the world does that mean? Like, for example, in verse 6, it refers to a man by the name of Melchizedek. And some of you are thinking, I have never heard that name. Who in the world is that? What does this do with me? What relevance is this passage of Scripture to me and my situation? Did any of you think that way? I, I suspect you did. Because these were Jewish Christians living back in the first century. We've been learning in the book of Hebrews that these folks were probably living in or near Rome. It was the days of the emperor Nero. These Christians were being persecuted by the Roman authorities there, and they were being tempted to return to their Judaistic roots. Because if they could return to their Judaistic roots, they would escape some of the harsh treatment that they were being given. So these are very different people from you and me. What possible connection can I have to these people in Hebrews chapter 5, you might have thought? Well, what we're going to find out today is that there are a lot of similarities between you and me and the people to whom the book of Hebrews was written. One of the great themes of the book of Hebrews is the high priestly work of Jesus Christ. And there again, you're probably going to think, high priest, that's not something that I know. What is a priest? I'm not a Roman Catholic. I'm not Jewish. What does a priest have to do with me? Well, you're going to find out that there are a lot of reasons that Jesus being the high priest applies to you and to me. But this theme of the priesthood of Christ is throughout the book of Hebrews. And the point of the author is to say that Jesus is our superior high priest. So why would you want to go back to the old way of Aaron? Aaron is named in that passage. Aaron being the the prototypical high priest of the Jewish people. He was the first high priest back in the Old Testament. Why would you want to go back to that system, the author is saying, if Jesus Christ is your real high priest, your superior high priest? So let me tell you a few things about high priests so that at least you will know, okay, this is what they knew and this is what I need to know in order to understand this passage a little bit better. Some facts about the high priests of the Old Testament. First of all, they were Levites. Do you remember in the Old Testament there was Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Those were sort of the three. Abraham the father, Isaac the son, Jacob the grandson. And then out of Jacob came the 12 tribes of Israel. One of those 12 tribes was the tribe of Levi. And within the family of Levi, there was this fellow named Aaron eventually who began to become the first high priest. So all of the high priests were Levites. They descended from Aaron. The other thing the Old Testament teaches us about them is that they served for life. They served for life. When they died, the high priesthood went to their firstborn son. So it passed down through the line of Levi like that. They were required to live a holy life in utter consecration to God. They had to be obedient to God. One of the things the high priest could not be is physically defective. They, didn't, they couldn't have any physical deformity or infirmity at all. Leviticus 21.21 21 says, No descendant of Aaron who has any defect is to come near to present the offerings made to the Lord. The Levites, or rather the high priests, represented the entire nation before God. Do you remember if you were here Friday night, I talked about the high priest having a breast piece? 
And on the breastpiece were 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And so as the high priest went before the presence of the Lord, he carried the, the, the people of Israel upon his heart. And he prayed to the Lord representing the people of Israel that way. And then these uh, high priests, along with the other priests, officiated at the brazen altar and at the holy place from day to day. They burned sacrifices. They brought the gifts and the offerings of the people before the Lord, representing the people before God. They kept the golden candlestick burning that was always inside the holy place. They burned incense morning and evening. They taught the people God's law. And finally, and this is something I'm going to have more to say about later, they made annual atonement for the sins of the people on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Now, those are just some facts about the high priests of the Old Testament. And those are the things that I'm saying were unique to the Hebrew people. And you and I are culturally different. We can't maybe relate to all of those things. But let me tell you three things. Three things this morning that prove that you and I are a lot more similar to the Hebrew people than perhaps we might first think. I want to share with you three things. Three things about the fact that the people to whom Hebrews was written were very, very similar to you and me. Ready? Here's the outline. First of all, you need somebody powerful enough to represent you. Second, you need someone loving enough to encourage you. And third, you need someone holy and obedient enough to die for you. So that's where we're going to go. Let's start with, first of all, you need somebody powerful enough to represent you. And that's true of you, it's true of me, it's true of people everywhere. We need someone powerful to represent you. Look with me at verse 1. The first verse of our text says, Every high priest is selected from among men, and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. In other words, the high priest was the mediator. Now, you know what a mediator is, right? You've needed mediators all down through your life, and so have I. I had a girlfriend in third grade. Her name was Marlene Kelly. And you know how I got to know Marlene Kelly? I went to a mutual friend named Karen Gregory, and I said, Hey, Karen, would you please go speak to Marlene for me and find out if she likes me? Karen was my mediator. Didn't you do that in elementary school? You remember the notes that you would pass to somebody, and it would say, Do you like me? Yes, no, circle one. Well, Karen was my mediator, and it turned out that Marlene did like me after all. So she was my first girlfriend in life. Um, When I applied for college scholarships, what did I do? I had to have a mediator. I listed the names of people who would serve as my referrals, people who could speak up for me. Um, When I applied for jobs down through my lifetime, I had to list someone who would be a referral for me. And so everybody needs a mediator. You've had mediators all throughout your life as well. Anytime you want to meet an important person, You need to get somebody to get them to know you. If you're trying to get into college, you have to have a mediator. If you need to reconcile with someone whom you've offended, if you've ever been convicted of a crime or taken to court, you've needed a mediator. If you've ever voted for someone to be your proxy at an HOA meeting or a board of directors meeting, you needed a mediator. 
Why do you need a mediator? You need a mediator because of the distance between you and the other party. See, the greater the distance, the greater the need of a mediator with great qualifications. Think about it. If you wanted to go see President Obama, you would need a lot greater of a mediator than I needed to meet Marlene Kelly in third grade. The greater the distance between you and the other person, the greater the need for a person of great qualification. That shows that the mediator that you need the most is the one who will stand before God for you. Because the distance between you and God is infinite. You've sinned against Him. So have I. We have offended God by our sins and iniquities. And so we need a mediator of infinite value to stand between us and God if we ever hope to be reconciled. In verses 4 through 6, we find out that that infinitely qualified mediator is Jesus Christ. Look at verse 4. It says, No one takes this honor upon himself. He must be called by God, just as Aaron was. So Christ also did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest. But God said to him, You are my son. Today I've become your father. And he says in another place, You're a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Do you know what Christmas is really all about? Christmas is about the birth of a mediator. That's why Isaiah says to us, for to us a son is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. You know, most people think in the world today that the way to get to God is to do good things. The way to reach God is to climb toward him by doing more good things than bad things. The most common philosophy on earth today is that one day you will stand before God and God will look at your good deeds and your bad deeds and weigh them off against each other. And if your good deeds outweigh your bad, then God will say, you're good enough for me, come on into heaven. The Bible teaches that that is not true. That in fact, we can never do enough good things in order to get to God. The distance between you and God is infinite before you come to Christ. So you need someone of infinite worth to bridge the gap between you and God and to bring you and God together. Jesus Christ is that someone. He's your mediator. He is your high priest. Every day, Jesus is on his throne at the right hand of God, representing you before the Father, praying to the Father for you. It says in 1 John 2, 1, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. See, until you put your faith and trust in Jesus, listen to me. Until you put your faith and trust in Jesus, you and God are separated by an infinite chasm. You can never do enough good to reach across that chasm. Put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And you and God are friends. So first, you need someone powerful enough to represent you before a sovereign God. The second thing we find out in Hebrews 5 is that not only do you need someone powerful enough to represent you, 
But you need someone loving enough to encourage you. You need someone loving enough to encourage you. Look at verse 2. It says in verse 2, He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and going astray since He Himself is subject to weakness. It's talking about the high priest again. He must be, this high priest must be gentle enough to deal with those who are ignorant and going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. When you read through the Old Testament at the duties of the high priest, one of the other things that you find out that I didn't mention earlier is that it was the high priest's duty to bless people. To bless people. Look at this passage from the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 6. And while you're reading that, I need to get a little glass of water. Can you? Thanks. It says in number six, the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron and his sons, this is how you are to bless the Israelites. Say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. And so they will put my name on the Israelites and I will bless them. Now, this is called the Aaronic benediction. It's one of the first benedictions in the Bible. And it's one of my favorites. Many times when I give the benediction at the end of the service, that's the benediction that I will pronounce. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you. And give you his peace. That was the blessing that the high priest was to give the people of Israel. Now again, here is one of those things in which we differ culturally from those people of the Old Testament. What did it mean to be blessed? That's, that's one of those Christian words we sort of love to hate. Bless you, we say. Or we pray, Lord bless so and so. What are we really saying when we say the word bless? We're saying something powerfully important. The Hebrew word is barach. The Greek word is eulogeo, from which we get the word eulogy. But bless means to praise. Like when we bless the Lord, we are praising God. Another synonym for bless is salute. We are saluting someone when we bless them. To, to, uh, to bless means to confer happiness and prosperity upon someone else. That's really what it means. And so when the high priest gave this blessing on the people, he was conferring God's prosperity and happiness upon the people of Israel. It also means to let someone know that God's favor and approval rests upon them. Did you hear that? It's to let someone know that God's favor and approval rests upon them. That's why you and I should be blessing each other. Reminding each other constantly that God's favor and approval rests upon each other. I've told you before about my father. And one thing that's really special to me this morning is that my brother's here. My brother is uh, a little older than me. He lives in Tennessee. He and his son are both visiting with us over Christmas. And I can't tell you how meaningful it is for me that my brother's here today. And my brother and I have talked often about our father. Our father died about 10 years ago. One of the things my brother and I have agreed on is that our father was not profuse in his affection for us. 
one of the things my brother and I would have loved would have been more blessing, right? More hugs, more I love yous, more conferring of God's favor and approval upon us. And we're sort of limping around in life because we didn't get that. But I've also told you about the day I got it. It was the day I graduated from seminary. That was the day in which I was in cap and gown. I received my Master of Divinity degree from my seminary up in St. Louis, Missouri. I walked out afterwards into the foyer of the Rayburn Chapel. And my father was across the room. He walked toward me with a look in his eye that I don't think I'd ever seen before. He came over to me without a word and took me in his arms and pulled me tight. And he didn't let go. You know how when you're getting hugged, there's that moment when you think, okay, that's enough. But this time he didn't let go. And many years of pain disappeared in that moment. I felt his blessing. I felt the conferral of approval and favor. And let me tell you, moms and dads, your children need that desperately. They need your blessing. But it meant so very much to me. It changed my life. I still am encouraged by that moment. Sometimes when things get dark and dim, I think that man loved me. He encouraged me. And it made such a lasting impression upon me. All right. Hold that thought. Because look at verse 5. The second half of verse 5 in which Jesus, uh, God says to Jesus, You are my son. Today I've become your father. That is a quotation from Psalm 2. It's a psalm of messianic expectation. It's a psalm about Jesus who was yet to come. It's a, a pronouncement of blessing from God the Father upon God the Son. It's a conferral of happiness from God the Father upon God the Son, looking forward to the day when the Son of God would rise from the dead. You are my Son. Today I've become your Father. That's what that is. But those of you who believe in Jesus Christ, guess what? Those are the exact same words that God says to you. It's like my dad. He takes you in his arms, pulls you close and says, you are my daughter. I'm your father. You are my son. I'm your father. Friend, that's a blessing. The high priest gave the blessing to the people of Israel. Jesus Christ gives the blessing. To the people of God today, if you are trusting in Jesus Christ for your salvation, then Jesus, your high priest, deals with you gently. He blesses you. He pronounces God's favor over you and affirms your identity as a son or a daughter of God. That's part of his work as your high priest. What have we learned so far? We've seen that you need someone powerful to represent you, someone loving to encourage you. Let's end with this thought. You need someone holy and obedient 
to die for you. You need someone holy and obedient to die for you. Look at verse 3. This again is speaking about the high priest of Israel. And it says this is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. All right, now let's switch gears again and think back to the high priest. Every day, along with those other priests, the high priest would bring sin offerings and guilt offerings before God on behalf of the people. But the most sacred duty of the high priest happened once a year on Yom Kippur that I mentioned earlier, otherwise known as the Day of Atonement. Once a year on that day, here's what happened. Let me tell you in my own words. The high priest would bring a bull out of the flock of bulls for his own sin offering. And he would kill the bull and take some of the blood and go into what is known as the most holy place, the place where only the high priest could go once a year. It was hidden from view by a curtain. And inside the most holy place was the Ark of the Covenant, was uh, several other things, but the Ark of the Covenant was there. And what the high priest would do is take that blood of the bull, walk in there into this little inner sanctuary and uh, sprinkle the blood on the Ark of the Covenant and in front of the Ark of the Covenant. That covered his own sin. Then the high priest would go back out, go to the flock of animals and pick out two goats. One goat would be the sin offering and the other goat was the scapegoat. The sin offering. Was that he would kill that goat and take some of that blood and go into the most holy place, sprinkle the Ark of the Covenant, sprinkle in front of the Ark of the Covenant. And that was the sin offering to cover the guilt of the people and to satisfy the wrath of God upon their sin. Then he would walk outside the tabernacle or the temple, place his hands on the head of the other goat, the one that I said was known as the scapegoat, and pronounce over the goat the sins of the people. I don't know how that would go. I, I don't know if he would say, uh, uh, Mary, uh, the sin of lying, you know, uh, John, the sin of coveting. I, I don't know how he did it, but he, he pronounced the sins of the people over the head of that scapegoat. And then he would send the goat out and the goat would run out into the wilderness, symbolically taking the sins of the people away from the camp, away from the people, and figuratively speaking, away out of the sight of God himself. So that sin was both propitiated, that means that the wrath of God was averted, and sin was expiated, which means that it was cleansed. Sin was cleansed out of the, off the record of the, of the people of Israel. So how does that relate to our high priest, Jesus Christ? Well, if you were listening, I said that this was all symbolic, that when the, the blood of the goat was sprinkled it was a symbolic way of cleansing the people when the scapegoat was sent out into the wilderness it was a symbolic way of of uh, of imagining that the sins of the people were removed see it's impossible the book of hebrews says for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins it's impossible the day of atonement was just a type or a shadow or a hint of what jesus was going to do once and for all on the cross. And the cross is mentioned in verses 7 through 9. Look at verse 7. It says, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, He offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save Him from death. 
And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Now, here is the big difference between Jesus and the high priest. You remember that it said that the high priest had to pay for his own sins first and then the sins of the people? But not so, Jesus. No, Jesus didn't die for his own sins because he wasn't a sinner. He was without defect and without blemish. No, see, what happened was that God the Father took your sins and my sins and the sins of all of his people and laid them on his Son. In a very real sense, God the Father treated His Son like the goat of the sin offering and the scapegoat. He satisfied the wrath of God towards sin and He cleansed us of the guilt and the penalty of sin. Jesus Christ carried our sins away, never to be seen again. The prophet Micah said that God hurled all of our iniquities into the depths of the sea. And right there, of course, is the big difference between the high priests of the Old Testament and Jesus Christ. He didn't just offer sacrifices. He was the sacrifice. And by turning away from your sins and renouncing your self-reliance and following after Jesus, you can have your sins removed forever and be given a brand new life. Jesus Christ, our high priest, powerful to represent you, loving enough to encourage you, holy and obedient enough to die for you. What if you really believe that? What if you really believe that? You say, well, I do believe it. No, what if you really believed it? What if every moment of every day, these three truths about Jesus, your high priest, so filled your heart, so filled your mind that you couldn't live apart from those three things. What would change? Well, let me say three things I think would change. First of all, you would live with boldness and confidence because you know you have a powerful ally standing for you at all times in heaven. And you would live with happy abandon because you know your true identity. You know that the only person in the world who matters calls you his son or daughter. And you would live without shame or regret because you know you've been washed clean in the blood of Christ and forgiven forever. May we, may we do so. May we live this way. May we believe that Jesus is our high priest and never get away from that wonderful truth. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for sending Jesus. Thank you that you sent him. You didn't, you didn't abandon us in our misery. You didn't forget about us, Lord, when we were your enemies. You didn't just wreak vengeance upon us, Lord, when we were disobedient to you. But instead, you sought after us. You pursued us. You came for us. You sent Jesus to be our high priest. And Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that you are our our powerful ally, that you are our loving friend, And that you are our obedient and holy sacrifice. Holy Spirit, we pray that you'll take these truths and so, so plant them in our hearts. That we will live according to them. And that we will always trust in our great high priest. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.